As we open it tonight, let's have our hearts surrendered to it. Psalms 133, just three verses. The Word of God says this, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. As the dew of Hermon, as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time that You've given us. Thank You for Your precious Word. Now, Lord, we need this tonight. I need this tonight. And so, Father, I pray that You would help all of us to glean and gain from Your Word that which would draw us closest to You. Father, we do love You, and we thank You for all these things above the things we've mentioned. Lord, we want to thank You for the cross of Calvary. Oh, Lord, You didn't have to love us. You, it, you didn't, it wasn't necessary for You to love us, for You to be God. But You, being God, and being love, You did love us. Lord, we love You because You first loved us, so teach us to love You more. Father, we ask all these things now in Christ's name. Amen. As we read in the 133rd Psalm, we have the first instance of a word that I believe we use a lot today. I believe we misunderstand it a lot in these days that we live in. And it is the word unity. The word unity is found only three times in the Word of God. But I believe if we'll look for a few moments tonight at these three usages... I believe we'll get an understanding of what the Lord means when He talks about unity. The Bible says this in the 133rd Psalm, that it is good and it is pleasant to dwell together in unity. The word unity, literally, now this is going to blow your mind. You ready? It means together. (laughs) I know you weren't expecting that, amen? Uh, But that's what it means. It means to be together, to be a unit. And God expresses to us in this passage, and in two others at least by explicit usage of this word, that it's the will of God that you and I as believers have unity one with another. Now the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the lost man and the saved man cannot have unity with each other. The Bible says that what concord hath Christ with Belial, hath light with darkness. Uh, So... We understand that unity is based upon our knowledge and our relationship with the Lord. Any unity or self-proclaimed unity that chooses to dismiss God and His Word is not true unity. True biblical unity is rather based on an understanding of God and His Word. You and I, listen, it's a precious thing to be part of the church. I mean, we ought not take that lightly. It is a blessed thing. I don't mean Wall Ridge Baptist Church. I mean, I think it's a blessing to be a part of this church, but I don't even mean just the church in America. I mean, it's a blessing to be a part of the church in America. I don't mean a part of Western Christianity. It's a blessing to be a part of it. I mean, I'm not ashamed of it. Uh, There's too much guilt as it is, amen, and uh, shame over those. I'm not ashamed of it. But I mean to be a part of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a light thing. That is not a casual thing. I believe that God gives us an understanding of what it takes for us to dwell together in unity. And and I'll be honest with you, as I just sort of studied this, there's a few thoughts that came to my mind. We are going to examine all three usages and, and look at them in an expository manner. But really, if nothing else, it's just a vehicle for me to say a few things tonight that I believe would help us. Let me say this before we even preach, that unity is not a passive thing. 
Unity, rather, is an active thing. You know, Christ said this, that you and I, that we ought to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not just peacekeepers, but rather peacemakers. In other words, we are not just stewards of unity, but rather the responsibilities on your shoulders and my shoulders to try to engender unity in the body of Christ. You know, so oftentimes we view this thing of unity as, as a, sort of a Fabergé egg that you prop it up and hope no one tips it over. But can I tell you something? That when unity is broken, unity can be restored. Can I tell you that unity does not happen by happenstance, but it happens through us endeavoring to keep unity? So as we look at this tonight, I, I hope that the Lord will teach us all a little bit of something about it. I believe I need to know more than probably anybody else in this room, and I pray the Lord will teach me some things. In the 133rd Psalm, I believe we have an endorsement of unity. Now, let me say this, that we live in a divided and a divisive world. Let me say that division in and of itself is not always a bad thing. There are certain things it helps you to divide from. Amen? There are certain things. You go down to the, to the Knoxville City Zoo, and you're going to find some barriers between you and some of those animals. Some places of division. Let me say that if you go down there and you go to that gorilla, uh, is it a tank? I don't know. It ain't a cage, but whatever it is, uh, the, the gorilla terrarium. And uh, you stand there and you look at those gorillas that are behind that glass. Uh, it ought to give you a new appreciation and gratitude for whoever invented glass. Amen? Because if that wasn't there, you'd be a goner and I'd be a goner. You see, there are some things it helps us to divide from. Let me tell you something. One of the things I fear in this day that we live in... Now, I'm not preaching to everybody else. I'm preaching to us tonight, okay? I understand that if we were standing in a room with a bunch of stark raving liberals, the message might need to be different, but we're not tonight. We're sitting here on a Wednesday night in an independent fundamental Baptist church with folks that love God enough to come out in the dark and to worship Him. And so I want to preach a message to us tonight. And let me say this, that though division has its, its qualities, and though division is, is right and appropriate in some areas, I feel like somehow we have made ourselves crusaders of division. Even to the degree that we'll divide over folks that we have no business dividing from. Let me tell you something. Division has no place in the body. Amen? Division has no place in the body. Now, there are some things outside of the body we need to divide from. But for those that are in the body, division is not a preferable quality. And God describes the qualities of unity. Describes what unity is. And again, if we were to use just a strict definition, unity is the ability to dwell and operate together as a unit. In other words, not a not hundred people going a hundred directions, but a hundred people going towards and for the cause of Christ. And God says this about it. Notice the qualities. He says, I, or, well, I'm about to read somewhere in Ephesians. We'll get there in a minute. He says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now, let me say this, that unity is a matter of dwelling together. You can't dwell separately in unity. You dwell together in unity. You see, it's no big trouble to dwell separately in, some, in relative peace. But it's a challenge to dwell together in unity sometime. Let me tell you something. You get a hundred people bounced around in the same place trying to serve God and do something for Jesus Christ, it's going to take work to get along. It does. 
And I don't say this, there's nothing that has precipitated this. If you've got some problem with somebody, I don't know about it, and I'm not preaching it to you. I'm just saying, you get a hundred people in one place, it takes a little work sometimes. It's not dwelling separately in unity, it's dwelling together in unity. And God says, when I look at that, I see something that's good. Now, there's a lot of qualities that we associate with the idea of good. Can I tell you what good means? It means good. You know it when you see it. God knows it when He saw it. In fact, it's the first time that word good is used. The Lord created things and He stepped back and He saw that it was good. Let me tell you something. Good doesn't need a lot of definition in a practical sense. You can look at something and tell if it's good or if it's not good. God looks at unity and He says that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It's a proper thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a pleasant thing. Again, as we see ourselves as ministers and ambassadors of division in a world of compromise and and apathetic Christianity, and and I understand that. I mean, I understand it. Let me tell you something. If there's any problem with Christianity in this country, it's not that it's too upset, it's that it's not upset enough. I mean, I I get it, friend. I, I understand what you mean. But let us be careful lest we look at that which God has called good and say that's not good. You remember whenever God uh, showed Peter that he could eat bacon, don't you? In the book of Acts. And saw the sheet let down by four corners and all manner of unclean beasts. And Peter, he was real religious. And he said, hey, I'm not going to touch that. That's unclean. And you know what God told him? He said, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Let me tell you something. We can have all of the noble causes we want. But when the Lord looks at the body of believers in the local church, He says it's a good thing to have unity. He describes it as good and He describes it as as pleasant. That word's used a lot in your Bible, but pleasant basically means enjoyable. I've known people, and I even had had some family, especially on my... They're not here tonight, so I can talk about them. On my mama's side... Um, you know, her folks was mountain folks, and uh, they come out of Claiborne County, and, and, I mean, you know, they had to pop the sunshine in the kind of places that her kin come from. And uh, they were very Hatfield and McCoy. You ever known anyone like that? They enjoyed drama for the sake of drama. (laughs) They'd pick a fight just because they had nothing to do. Let me say that I think that the church has folks like that at times in it. Folks that thrive off of the drama can't function unless something is wrong. There's an upheaval of some type. Can I just say this to you? And I believe the Lord would say this to you as well. You'd be amazed how enjoyable unity is. You'd be amazed how much you'd enjoy. I, 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 don't, I don't like division and upheaval and fussing and fighting in our house. I ain't going to say it never happens. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to stand up here and try to paint a picture different than what the reality is. I mean... You know, we're, we're married, and if you're married, that means sometimes you fuss and you argue and things like that. But, but in my house, I, my daddy didn't have to do a lot of yelling. Did you have a daddy like that? He did his talking with a belt. And that was good. Let me tell you why. Because there didn't have to be a lot of yelling in our house. And my dad to this day, me and Mama, we'll get together, and our personalities are too much alike. And, and, and we'll get to talking and, and having some, some, you know, real intense... <laughs> moments and uh, discussing things and dad will say all right now i don't want to hear you argue you know he sounds just like that i don't want to hear you argue now and uh, i guess i have picked up that trade you know i enjoy peace in the home let me tell you something i believe the lord looks down at, at unity and he says what a pleasant sight for god's children to get along to enjoy each other's company 
he gives us some qualities. He says it's, it's good and it's pleasant. Then he notes the consecration of unity. Uh, for God to use the body to the most effective way, there has to be unity. Uh, you know this, and I know this, that the body, when there is any sort of division, you know what it is when you get sick? Now, how many of y'all, you, you get some of that, that drainage, that sinus drainage about this time of year? Do you ever do that? I do that sometimes. That's your body's way of saying, hey, there's something here we're trying to get rid of. That's division in the body, isn't it? Uh, you may have gotten a stomach bug or something to that effect, and I won't get graphic, but let me just say the body has a way of getting rid of that bug. That's division in the body. And you and I both know that when there's that division in the body, it cannot operate in the proper way. But hey, when it's healthy, when the body is functioning and working appropriately with each other, that's when God could use it. Listen to how God describes unity in verse 2. He says, It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. Now, if you're a Bible student, you know what that is. That's talking about the oil wherewith they would anoint the high priest. And that oil did not necessarily have any salvitic or supernatural qualities, but rather it was a public confession and a public distinction that this man's life was set apart for something more important than himself. Let me say this, that one of the testimonies of unity to a lost and dying world is that you and I, we're here for something more important than you and I. When, when a church of a of hundred or so, and I, I use that number because that's about what we got on a good Sunday, but uh, it, it could be a thousand or it could be ten, but when a church of a hundred can, can gather together and people can put their egos aside and their ambitions to the side and work together for the common cause of, of glorifying Jesus Christ, number one, and of reaching the lost, number two, when we can do that, that is a good testimony to a lost and dying world that this is more than just a social club. This is more than just a, you know, a good time uh, party group. Uh, we're here for something serious. And let me tell you something. I think the church is a serious thing. I mean, we joke around a lot, and I think that's fine. I don't think that offends the Lord. We have a good time. We worship and shout, and I believe that that honors God. But I believe the church is a serious thing. We are dealing in eternal commodities, and we are dealing in eternal matters. And one of the things that unity does, God says, I look at that and that tells me you've set aside your life for something greater than you. We see the consecration of unity, but we notice the confirmation of unity. Look verse 3, it says, As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, if you've studied this verse, I could tell you a hundred thousand things about it. I could tell you 50 different commentators' opinions. Uh, we do know that Hermon and Zion are not necessarily close to each other. But I'll tell you this, there's one thing I drew away from it is I, I drew the word descended. I don't know about you, but for some reason I've always think it, thought of dew as something that came up from underneath. But the Bible says it's something that descended. And he says this, that the dew from Hermon uh, and the dew from Zion that descended down, why did it descend down on Zion? Because there the Lord issued the blessing. In other words, it descended there because God was pleased with what was going on. Let me say that unity is in many ways the effort uh, or the, the fruit of our, our efforts and our spiritual uh, endeavor to keep and to make unity 
But let me say that I believe that unity also is the result of the blessing of God. Or maybe we could flip it around and say this, that God blesses unity. When it's true biblical unity, I believe God blesses it. Because I believe it honors Him. You've heard it said before that faith always honors God and God always honors faith. Well, I believe the same thing could be said about biblical unity. I, I make that distinction because there's a lot of unity falsely so-called. I don't mean compromise in the worst sense of that word. What I mean is the fact that we all understand that we're not here for me and we're not here for you, but we're here for Jesus Christ, and that the common ground that we stand on is not the cultural preferences we have, it's not the political persons that, that we endorse, but the common ground we have is the precious Word of God. And though we may disagree in a lot of areas, I promise you don't comb your hair like I comb mine. You probably don't organize your closet the way I organize my closet. But I promise you this, if you've been saved, you got saved the same way I got saved. And if you know a Savior, you know my Savior, because He's the only Savior there is. God blesses unity. It honors Him. Well, we see the endorsement of unity in the 133rd Psalm. Now I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. The word unity is found once in Psalms 133, and we read it. But in Ephesians chapter 4, the word is used twice, and these are the last two usages, uh, the only two besides that one in Psalms that are in the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 4, and I want you to listen to what it says in the first three verses. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, you can look just as plain as I can look, and you can see that that's all one sentence. And Paul says that all of these things that we're doing, that we've described in these first three verses, are with this goal in mind, we are endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, how does that happen? We've said a word about the endorsement of unity. I believe God's pleased and proud of unity when He sees it. But what about the endeavor of unity? How does it happen? What do you and I need to do to have unity? Well, now, I want you to listen carefully, and I, and I didn't even tell you this earlier, but I titled this message, Unity and You. Because let me tell you something. You can't worry about somebody else having unity, but you can do something about you having unity. You can't make anyone else do anything. I've learned that. Uh, my pastor used to tell me that, and every day in ministry is just a, a gentle reminder of that truth, that you cannot make anyone do anything. But Paul does not say that you are to endeavor to make others keep unity or make unity, but that you and I have certain things we can do to ensure that unity is there. And it's one of these funny deals right here that if you'll do what you're supposed to do, and if I'll do what I'm supposed to do, then there and there alone we can find unity. Notice the first verse. We see, first off, the call to unity. What does Paul say? He says, that I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. That's fascinating language. Let me tell you why. We know what that word vocation is. We know what vocational schools and things of that sort are. A, a vocation is a job. And Paul says, you and I as believers, we are called to do a job. And that job is not keeping unity. That job is something else. But in order to do that job, we must keep unity. 
Now, you know this if you've ever worked with people, uh, that uh, you're only efficient if you're working together, right? You're only efficient if you're working together. Again, you can take these things on a broad spectrum and you can, you can push these truths to a place where they, they imply compromise. And I don't believe that's what the Lord wants us to do. But I believe as we look at these as they function within the realm of the local church, I believe we gain a real understanding here. The first thing you have to do is you have to see that you have a job to do. You have to understand that, listen now, you are a member of Wall Ridge Baptist Church on purpose and with a purpose. You're not just here because there's no better place to be. <laughs> You're not just here because it's, you know, close to the house or here because we, we uh, preach out of the King James Bible or sing old-timey music. Now, you may like all those things. I hope you do. We do all those things on purpose. But you are here because God has a job for you to do and a work that you're to endeavor upon. You are called to do that just as sure as I am called into ministry. I was talking to somebody the other day and they were sharing with me that when they were a, a young person, they had been uh, called of God into the ministry and that they had, had been through a divorce and they didn't feel comfortable uh, preaching and they, they felt like they were disqualified for the ministry. And I, I told the man, I called his name, I said, let me tell you something. Just because you may not fulfill that capacity of a public calling, that doesn't mean that God is not going to use you in a great capacity. God can use that man. Listen carefully. God may not use that man in the same venue that he might use me, but God can use him to the same capacity or even a greater capacity than he might use me. Every single one of us, God has a desire to do something in our lives. And it's up to you and I. We have to walk worthy of that job. Let me tell you something. It would solve a lot of nonsense in the Christian life if we just look at our life as having to, to, uh, to live up to the job requirements of being a Christian. I know this isn't my message, but I, I, I'm, I want to say it anyway. You know, when you got a job, there were certain job requirements you had to have. You might have had to lift so much weight. You might have had to have a certain education. You might have had to have certain... Somebody sat back and they looked and they asked themselves, what kind of person do we want to do this job? And then they wrote out those qualifications. They looked for someone. I want to ask you something. If you were to sit back and ask yourself, if I wanted someone to be a Christian, what would the qualifications be? I bet you'd want someone faithful, someone dedicated, someone consecrated, someone that, that uh, was uh, long-suffering with other people, but someone that was serious about the work that God had called them to do. And on and on you might give. Can I ask you something? Are you walking worthy of that vocation wherewith you're called? Would you fit that job description if you were hiring somebody to be a Christian? There is a call to unity. It's not just a recommendation. It is a call. And then I want you to notice this. We see the characteristics that accompany unity. Now, God gives us three things here. And I, I'm not going to really preach all of them because there's not time, but I do want to touch on them. He says, with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering. Now, let me tell you something. Prideful people can't have unity because they can never admit when they've done something wrong. They can never admit when they've done something wrong. Uh, I, you know, I struggle with more pride than any human ought to have to struggle with. And you might say the same thing about you. But I found this, that uh, only by pride cometh contention, the book of Proverbs says. And so most of the time when I'm having a problem with somebody, or sometimes even when they're having a problem with me, i found that my pride has enabled, even if it has not caused it, it has enabled it in some way. Let me tell you, the shortest route to unity is lowliness. 
You say, preacher, it wasn't my fault. They did it to me. Yeah, and you might be doing it to someone else tomorrow. You don't know. You're not above it. I'm not above it. Not a one of us. Uh, if we had uh, pictures of ourselves, glimpses of ourselves on our worst day, we'd want them uh, stowed away or burned forever where no one could ever see them. We wouldn't want anyone to know we could act and behave in such a way. But that's how sin-fallen and depraved and corrupt and, and putrefied flesh is. And you've got it just like I've got it. So lowliness is a quality you're going to have to have. Notice the second thing, meekness. Now, people have uh, defined meekness in a thousand ways. Can I tell you uh, just a simple definition I think is good for meekness? Meekness is having every right and every ability to, but choosing not to because it doesn't honor God. You know, the Bible talks about using our liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. The Bible says that Moses was the meekest man on earth. There were times when God would have struck the whole nation of Israel down. If Moses had said, God, do it, do it. But he didn't. Why? Because it didn't glorify God. He looked at the Lord and he said, Lord, you can't do it. Now, these were people that would cuss his name. These are people that blamed Moses for every problem they had. These are people that said, Moses brought us out here to die in this wilderness. And yet here is Moses and he has the authority. And I believe any of us would say Moses had the right. If anybody had the right, it was Moses. And God saying, Moses, just get out of the way. I'll kill every one of them. I'll start over new with you. But Moses says, Lord, no. Because if you do that, the heathen are going to blaspheme your name. The heathen are going to blaspheme your name. Meekness is strength under spiritual direction. Or let's say strength under spiritual restraint. Having the liberty and having the right, but not seeing it as scripturally or spiritually expedient. And then he says this, not only lowliness and meekness, but long-suffering. Boy, that... That's a tough word. Long-suffering. Patience. 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 Allowing that people are going to make mistakes. Allowing that people are going to do something wrong. You better just get comfortable with the fact that there's going to be folks hurt your feelings. There's going to be folks say things wrong. There's going to be folks do you wrong. And very likely, you're going to do the same thing to other people. Long-sufferingness, the patience and willingness to allow for others' mistakes. These are three characteristics. God says these are characteristics of, of unity. Notice the compassion associated with, with unity. He says this, forbearing one another in love. I got to looking at that word forbearing and finding ways that it's found in our Bible. And there's actually a phrase we use all the time. And, and it comes from that word forbearing. And you'll find it several times in the Bible that Paul uses this, this phrase. But you know, sometimes we'll say this. We'll say, I've got a story to tell. Would you bear with me? Or we might say, I've been under the weather today. Would you bear with me? It literally means to prop somebody up and to hold them up. When someone is acknowledging and confessing that they're not what they ought to be, Paul says, you ought to prop that person up, be a help to them. You know what we're bad to do? Just as soon as somebody's weak, we want to kick the crutch out from under them so that we can watch them fall and say, I told you. Paul says, no, that's not how it's done. You forbear one another. You, when they're going to fall, you just lean against them. When they're going to, to slip, you just get underneath them, forbear them, and bear with them. 
And then we see the coordinator of unity. Look at verse number 3. I like this. Endeavoring. And I don't know if you mark in your Bible, but if you do, it wouldn't hurt you to underscore that word endeavoring because it's important. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I've thought a lot about that phrase. There's a lot of ways that you can look at a lot of things you could say about it. But can I just say a word about the coordinator of unity? Let me tell you something. You get enough people bouncing around close to each other, whether advertently or inadvertently, somebody's going to upset somebody. Preacher, how can we maintain unity? Well, here's the beautiful thing. I may not always know what you mean or what you say. I had a discussion with somebody the other day, and, and it took way longer than it should have. And I think a lot of the reason was because they were, there was a breakdown in understanding communication one with another. Uh, you might have trouble understanding me, or I might have trouble understanding you, but guess what? If you're born again, and I know I'm born again, there's somebody that lives within me and that lives within you. And he knows what is the mind of the Spirit. And the Spirit of God, if I'll just listen to the Holy Spirit, and if you'll listen to the Holy Spirit, if I'll just listen to the Holy Spirit, and if you'll just listen to the Holy Spirit, you say, but preacher, what if they don't? Well, you still need to listen to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Let the Spirit of God deal with them. He's capable. I know sometimes we think of the Spirit of God as this, this meek, mild, impotent being that, that tries his best but never seems to win out. But let me tell you something. The Spirit of God has the ability to buckle your knees and put you on your face if he wants to. You just obey the Spirit of God and trust that they will. And if they don't, they're God's child. God will deal with them. That's how the bond of peace is kept. It's not just kept through trying to figure each other out. It's not just kept through trying to keep from stepping on each other's toes. Uh, I want you to notice something. I'm done. Look down at verse number 12. We see the last usage of it. We see the endeavor of unity, but we see the end result of unity. Now, here's why it's so important to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because unity has more effects than just peace. In fact, let me say this to you. That the primary purpose in unity. Look at verse number 12 and 13. The Bible says, and, and God's just got through describing a lot of things. In verse number 4, He says, There's one body and one spirit, even you as, as you are called, and one hope you are calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, that sounds like unity, doesn't it? I mean, one God, one faith, one spirit, one baptism. It ought to be we'd have unity, but sometimes we don't. Now, why is that? But... Unto every one of us is given grace, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. In other words, if it, listen, if the church only had God in it, it'd never have a problem with unity. But the church has you and me in it. And so sometimes there's a problem with unity. So why would God allow... This sounds funny, but if the church is so great without us, why would God let us in it? Well, let me explain to you why. He says this, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. In other words, can I just put it this way? God says this, 
He says there's one God, one Spirit, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. But there's lots of folks in the church because we're all different. Every one of us. And God is using us in a different capacity. There's not a single one of us that's the same. Like snowflakes. We're all different. And God is using all of us in different ways. He gave the church all these different personalities and gifts and responsibilities. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till what? What is He driving us towards? Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me tell you something, that person that's so radically different from you or radically different from I, that person whose personality is so different from ours, that person that we have to work to love and work to get along with, believe it or not, God might just have them there for the edifying of the saints. Or you've heard people say this, it takes all kinds. It just, it takes all kinds. Every toolbox needs a lot of different tools in it. And hey, listen, you may be a screwdriver and you may not understand why the hammer has to be a hammer, but there are certain jobs that only a hammer can do. Now, you don't want to try to drive a screw with a hammer, but you'll never get a nail drove with a screwdriver. Every single one of us, God is using us in different capacities till we come to the unity of the faith. Now, it's interesting that the Bible talks not only about unity in general and the unity of the Spirit, but the unity of of, of faith. And it's interesting that the unity of the Spirit is spoken of as something that is present tense in the life of the church at Ephesus, but the unity of of the faith is something that is spoken of future tense. Could it be this? Could it be that if we all knew God well enough, if we all knew Scripture well enough, we'd never have any reason to disagree? But because we do disagree, because we do struggle sometimes, if we'll just mind the Holy Ghost, then we can have unity until we reach that point where we have a greater understanding of the Scripture and a greater relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, can I say it this way? If the church had nothing but Jesus Christ as its members, and no one but Jesus Christ as its pastor, there would be no reason for messages on unity. And so Paul says this is what we're moving towards. We're moving towards the unity of the faith, and what will happen when that happens? Well, I want you to notice three things. Look at the end result of unity. The first thing is this of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, it's interesting that God would say this. Because if you were to ask me, preacher, what's the primary purpose of unity in church? I think most folks would say this, and I would have said this, well, to get along, to have peace. That's the reason I need to strive for unity, and that's the reason you need to strive for unity, is so that we have peace. But that's not what God says. God says the main reason that we strive for unity is because it makes us more Christ-like. Let me tell you something. There's times that you'll strive for unity with someone, and it won't never happen, even if you're doing everything right, because of the way that they're living and what they're doing. But, and if that was the primary purpose, then unity would have failed. But the primary purpose of unity is through that endeavor, through that that sacrifice, that self-denial, that crucifying of self, and that embracing and uplifting and exalting of the crucified life and of the risen Son of God, through that you'll become more Christ-like. I think a good picture is the relationship this world has with Jesus Christ. He came unto His own, and He came perfectly. 
He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't commit a single sin. He didn't, he didn't do anything that was at all with anyone that, that was, that was his fault. I mean, everything that the Son of God did, there was no reason for them to dislike him, but his own received him not, and they crucified him. The truth is, the end result, the primary one, is not always unity. This is an important safeguard, and here's why. And I want to explain this to you. I believe this is worth saying. If the whole purpose of unity were peace, then we would endeavor to pursue unity at all costs. In other words, if there was something that me and you disagreed on and unity was the only goal, then we'd just ignore whatever we disagreed on, whether that be the Word of God or the deity of Christ or the, the, uh, the exclusivity of salvation by faith. But that's not the purpose. The main and chief and primary purpose of unity is for us to become Christ-like. So we're not becoming Christ-like if we have unity at the expense of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Another good example is evangelism. I ain't preaching on this, but I think it'll clarify it a little bit to you. The primary purpose of a Christian is not to win the lost. The primary purpose is to bring glory to God. Now, you're open to Ephesians. You can read over to chapter 1, and you can see where Paul says that. Now, the primary work of the Christian is to preach the gospel unto every creature. But the primary purpose is that we might glorify God. Why is this distinction important, preacher? Because if the primary purpose is not to glorify God, then you could advocate evangelism at any cost. Hey, I mean, you know, buy drugs for the addict, buy liquor for the drunk, if that'll get them to hear the gospel. No, because in doing that, we dishonor the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way, the primary purpose of unity is that we might be more Christ-like. If we have to do anything that makes us less Christ-like to have unity, then it's not biblical unity. By the same token, in your life, don't always look at unity as the end game of a pursuit of unity because you won't always have unity with everyone. But rather understand that through that endeavor, you're becoming more like Jesus Christ. You're having to be less about you and more about Him and more about others. The first purpose in, in resulting unity is to resemble the Son. Let me say the second one, look at verse 14, is that we might remain in the Scriptures. It says this, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Let me tell you something, it is a lot harder for heresy to enter a church with unity than it is for heresy to enter a church where there's already division. It, see, here's the thing. If you and I, we have unity, and, and if, if you get up, and I'll use Brother Larry as, as an example, if me and him have unity and we love each other and we get along and we have a long suffering towards each other and Brother Larry gets up and he teaches something that's not in accordance with Scripture, I can go to him and say, Brother Larry, there's something we need to talk about. You said something. By the same token, he could come to me and say, Brother Toby, you said something. I'm just not sure about this. If I'm wrong, explain it to me. If not, I, I, I need to talk to you about it. I want to show you in Scripture. And as a tight-knit body, the healthy body has greater ability to ward off disease. To ward off disease. Let me tell you something. One of the worst things for disease is an open wound. Somebody say, isn't that true? It's part of the reason diseases spread so rapidly in third world countries is because so often without, without any kind of, of medical assistance, a, a wound, just a cut or, 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 or just a burn or, or, or just a scrape, if it's left open, it is so susceptible to the airborne pathogens and diseases 
that are around. Let me tell you something. This old wicked world that we're in, there's all kinds of nonsense flying around this air. All kinds of nonsense. You turn on your TV and there'll be poison pumped right into your house from some uh, fork-tongued TV preacher. You go and you read, you get on the Internet. My goodness, I mean, if, if you ever wonder where all the crazy folks went, they all climbed on the Internet. It's everywhere. But if we have unity with each other and we can talk and we can discuss, and if I, ha- if I love you enough to rebuke you when you're wrong, or if you love me enough to come to me and rebuke me, if there's something I've preached or taught that's unscriptural, it helps to ward off bad doctrine. We don't get carried away. Carried away. Finally, and I'm done, I think that one of the end results of unity is we resemble the Son, and another is that we remain in the Scriptures. But I think finally it's that we refresh the saints. Look at verse number 15. He says, but speaking the truth in love, and you you can say what you want, you can believe what you want, but I believe he's talking about uh, preaching when he says that. Now, I, I believe we ought to speak the truth in love in our personal relationship, but I believe he's talking about preaching when he says that. He is contrasting that with the heresy that carries folks away. He's saying instead of that, we're speaking the truth in love. May grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So... The church as a body is growing closer to Christ. And then what happens? From whom? From the head, from Christ. The whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. In other words, you know what unity does? Let me tell you something. You may have a word in season to speak to me. And if I don't have unity with you, it may not get spoken. God has used some pretty unlikely sources to speak truth into my life at times. Folks that I would have never guessed, God would have used. But you see, that's how it works. We're all members and parts of this body. It's not the pastor is the head. Christ is the head. And the pastor is another part of that body, just like you're a part of that body. He may be the under-shepherd, but he's not the chief shepherd. And he may have a, a headship or an authority, but he is not the head. Christ is the head of the body. And as such, that nourishment, that strength, as it flows outward from the head, which is Christ, it flows through every joint. In other words, this thing, this is a living organism. That's what, the, that's what the church is. It's a living organism. The Word of God is ministered not just from the pulpit outward, but even in the midst of the body as we dwell together in unity. As you share, as you comfort one another, as you share the things God has done in your life, as you say a word in season to somebody that may be struggling. But where there's not unity, where the body's disjointed, it can't happen. Let me tell you something. Where there's unity, there's a stronger body. It doesn't matter what part it is, whether it's a foot or a toe or an arm or what, you cut off the supply to it, and it'll wither and die. It'll wither and die. And you may find this. (laughs) I mean, the shoulder may not need the arm to survive, but it might need to be scratched every now and then. Am I right? You may look and say, well, you know, I don't need them. You might be surprised how much you need them. I might be surprised how much I need you. And so God is doing a work through the whole body.